Let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, verse 1, Acts chapter 4, verse 1, and we'll be reading through verse 22. Uh, again, a wondrous moment in the life of the early church as they are experiencing the persecution of the Sanhedrin, a moment of testing, uh, if you will, of the early church. And so let's dive into God's Word in Acts chapter 4, verse 1. The priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. And so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer in, to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourself whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help but, speak, but help speaking about that uh, we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. This is God's word. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless your, the reading and the study of your word tonight and that you would feed us, your people, well. 
by your spirit, through your word, for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What a scene. This glorious moment in the history of the early church. Peter and John, after that glorious miracle of the man who was lame at the beautiful gate, and now over 40 years old, he's walking around and he's jumping up and down. And they have this wondrous moment being questioned before the Sanhedrin, the greatest body of Jewish power in the world at the time. And what do we read? That Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And it is very clear when you get to verse 12 that salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Salvation is in no other name than the name of Jesus. Salvation is in the name of Jesus, a man whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. I mean, imagine this is your inquisitors and you tell them you crucified him. You can tell he's filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a man who is taken up by the Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel and to proclaim this reality that there is no other name under heaven by which men may be saved by. In fact, what did Jesus say as he commissioned his disciples, that great commission? He says, all authority on, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. But no other name, no other name but Jesus can save. These are the exclusive claims of Christianity. These are the claims that have gotten Christians in trouble through the last 2,000 years. These are the claims that gets ones canceled in campuses. The exclusivity of Christ as the only way to God, as the only way to God the Father, as the only way to be saved. And just to emphasize the reality here before the Sanhedrin, you see a chiastic structure, fancy word for a very Jewish way to speak. He begins and ends with salvation and saved, and in the middle he says, no one else and no other name. It's a very Jewish way to emphasize his position, what he's stating. There is no other name in all of heaven, in the entire universe, by which men and women can be saved. Only the name of Jesus. I mean, of course, we're, we are the church. We believe that to be true. But we need to speak that again and again into our hearts because the church is prone to leave the one she loves. The church is prone to say nothing. The per church is prone to go with the crowd. The church is prone to be silent. And that's not what you see in the apo apostolic ministry. You do not see silence. You see very clearly there is no other name under heaven by which men might be saved. Only the name of Jesus. Only the sweet name of Jesus. For those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit, it's a sweet name, isn't it? 
But as you well know, it's a, a name of offense. It's a name that got these men threatened. It's a name that got these men beat. It's the name that Peter and John suffered for and Peter died for. The name of Jesus. The exclusive claim that there is no other way to be saved than through Jesus Christ. Wow, that's a narrow gate, isn't it? That's a narrow way. But that's the gospel. Oh boy, with my unbelieving family, that gets me in real trouble. And when you talk about the consequences of rejecting the only way to be saved, the consequence of hell, that will get you in real trouble in an interesting conversation with family, especially when, when you're one of their guests. But that's the gospel. There's only one way. So who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Because as you go to the catechism, and it's important for the catechism to define who Jesus is. What we know who Jesus is, is he is a truly righteous man. That we can say with, without a doubt, that Jesus is a truly righteous man. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. So Jesus was truly man. He was a truly righteous man, so that, as we see here, he might fully pay for all our sins, that he might pay the penalty, if we want to get more specific, for our sins. But we also know that Jesus is not only truly man or truly a righteous man, but he is also truly God, right? He is truly and fully man, and he is truly and fully God. This is the position of the catechism, but I wanted to go to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, talking about Jesus as our high priest. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. That is what's interesting. Clearly, this text speaks of Jesus' humanity. But when he says, exalted above the heavens, exalted above creation, who was exalted above all things? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is clearly God, because in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, as the Apostle John proclaimed. Yes, he was fully truly righteous man, holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, but exalted above the heavens. And unlike, unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He, sacrificed for, he was sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. That statement in itself is a demonstration of Jesus' divinity. Yes, he had to be truly righteous, 
man in order to pay for sin, right? To take the penalty for sin. But only if he was fully God could he offer himself once for all the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. So he had to be both. I mean, we study this in our catechism, but it is good to go over again and again and again. Because if you get Jesus, who Jesus is wrong, you will get the gospel wrong. Because if Jesus isn't fully God, then why did he die? Did he die as a good example for you? Did he die so that you would know how to live a good life and how to be sacrificial and, and righteous altogether? Uh, that's a liberal position, but it's not actually a biblical position, is it? No, Jesus was fully, truly man, and he was fully, truly human. And because of that, we can have this wondrous certainty, assurance, using the catechism language, comfort in life and in death, that yes, my sins have been fully paid for in Jesus Christ and him crucified once for all on the cross. I can have that assurance by faith, can't I? Can't you? Uh, that's what this is about. Because if you don't know who Jesus is, you can't have any certainty that his death for you accomplished anything, can you? Except for platitudes, maybe, or except you repeat something. But if you don't know who he is, you cannot know what he has done, can you? Because who he is makes possible what he's done. The church fought hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years over these issues. And they were, in fact, quite dangerous to the church. Because Arius, you know about him, Arius did not believe Jesus is fully God. Well, if Jesus is not fully God, then you have not had your sins fully paid for. Which ones haven't you had fully paid for? You better deal with those right now, because, oh, you might be in trouble. You might have to do some extra pilgrimages, maybe some extra things that we need to make up for you in order to keep you on the straight and narrow. But you'll never have any certainty because you never know if those sins have been satisfied by your good works. Thanks, Arius. That's why he was condemned a heretic. Jehovah's Witnesses are the Ariuses of today. So is this issue a big issue? It is an extremely important issue for the church. Jesus' full, true humanity as a righteous man and his full, true deity. And what we also know is that Jesus is, well, he's the mediator, isn't he? between God and man. You hear this proclaimed by the Apostle Paul to Timothy and to the church at Ephesus when he writes in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time the mediator between God and man. Of course, that would have brought back images of Moses on the mountain, wouldn't it? it? Was it not he the mediator between God and his people? The difference is, is that the Lord Jesus Christ, our mediator, gave his life, didn't he? He, he sacrificed his life in order to ransom us, in order to purchase us, in order to make us his own and the Father's own. And what does he continue to do right now as the mediator? Is he done? Is the mediatorial work of Jesus done? Well, what's he doing right now as mediator? 
Is he not interceding for you? Is he not living to intercede for you? Does he still not have the nail-scarred hands and feet and side? Remember Thomas? Thomas had a lot of doubts. He was a matter-of-fact kind of guy. What did Jesus show him? In his resurrection body, the scars were still there. That's right. The Lord Jesus Christ still intercedes in his true humanity. Yes, resurrected but true humanity with those nail-scarred hands and feet and sides. It's almost as if Jesus has ever before him what he has done, and he's interceding mine. I died for you. I died for you. I died for you. He brings us to the Father. These are mine. They belong to me. I died for them. I love them. And I died for them because you love them, Father. That's what's going on. It's wonderful. That's how he mediates for you. These are mine. And he ever says that. You are his. You are the ones he has ransomed. You are the ones he has saved at the cross. Man, this ought to make, this ought to make our hearts sing and say, Glory, hallelujah. And of course, Jesus, the substitute. There's that glorious text. We've said it before, again, again and again, in fact, from 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who had no sin truly righteous. Right? He had no sin. He was truly righteous. Made him sin for me. Just take that in. Jesus, the only truly righteous man who ever lived, was made sin for you. And what did you receive? His righteousness. Do, do you deserve the righteousness of, of Jesus Christ? Do I? This that great exchange we talk about? My sin for his righteousness? It sounds too good to be true. But he had to do it, didn't he, that substitute, in order to be a faithful high priest, in order to pay for all my sins in his body, one who was truly man and truly God. So I can be assured the great exchange has happened, right? It's happened. It's done once for all. Jesus, my substitute, and now he's Jesus, my friend. And what does the heart want to do when it hears this good news? Well, listen to what Jesus says. This makes my heart sing every time I hear it. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus clearly is de declaring his divinity to his disciples in the upper room. But Jesus is the way. I am the way the truth, and the life. He is the way. You see, there's only one way to live. 
Yes, there's two ways, okay? There's two ways. You can live for yourself. You can live for the gods, the dead gods, the lifeless gods of this age. Or you can live for Jesus. There's no other way. There's no two ways. There's only a one way, and that's Jesus, the lover of your soul, the one who gave his life, the one who intercedes for those who are his, whom he ransomed before the Father. And that's what the apostles were preaching there in the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, next to the Temple Mount. There's no other name. There's no one else but Jesus that can save. No one else. Not the sacrificial system. He's fulfilled that. Not the law, for he has fulfilled that. Not keeping up with the halakha or later the Mishnah or the Talmud. No, no, no. The only way to be saved is through Jesus and him crucified and resurrected and ascended and reigning and coming again. And we ought to preach this to our heart again and again and again and again because there is no other name under heaven by which men and women must be saved. Must be. You hear that language? Must be. Now, of course, the catechism asks a question in those question and answers. Basically, how do we come to know him? Well, the apostles are helping that out in Jerusalem, aren't they? If you don't know about Jesus, we'll tell you. If you don't know why this man who's been paralyzed and has been begging at the beautiful gate every single day, and you all know him in Jerusalem, you know who I'm talking about. I'll tell you about him. I'll tell you who made him well. It was not me. If you go to chapter 3, it's very clear. It's Jesus. If you go here before the Sanhedrin, it's Jesus. Jesus made this man well. Not Peter, not John, but Jesus. And oh, by the way, there's no other name under heaven by which you must be saved. And you know what? This is what, I love this scene. He just come back to this verse. Peter is, well, the Holy Spirit through Peter. That's a better way. The Holy Spirit through Peter is saying, it's time to repent, gentlemen. It's time to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's time to leave your legalism. Leave your self-righteousness and find your righteousness in Christ. It is a call to faith in Jesus. He's preaching the gospel and the one way to God through Jesus Christ. I love that. And our lives have to sing that same story. And here's a, another question. The catechism is so helpful. I remember learning this like in, was it 10th grade? I think, I'm trying to remember who was it. I, don't know, I can't remember my te catechism teacher now. It, it eludes me. But I remember this because the question is, when did the preaching of the gospel begin? When did this story of one way to live through Jesus Christ begin? Where did it begin? You remember? At paradise, right? Paradise. In the garden. And the promise is made. The first Evangelion, the first gospel, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. A seed is coming, Satan, and he's going to crush you. He's going to crush your power. And I love it. The gospel is being proclaimed to Satan. Isn't that great? Of course, there's Adam and Eve listening by, but it's Satan is getting the gospel. 
the first gospel. And of course, there's the patriarchs, that one family through which God would save the world. You see that in Genesis 22, verse 18, after Abraham went to Mount Moriah to sacrifice his son, God then said this, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. And then, of course, the prophets were speaking of a suffering servant. In Acts chapter 10, verse 43, Peter in the house of Cornelius in Caesarea said these words, all the prophets... That's Amos, that's Micah, that's Isaiah, that's Jeremiah, that's Ezekiel. All the prophets, that's Zechariah, all the prophets testified about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And in fact, as the catechism ends, the ceremonial law, the sacrifices and feasts, are they not too witnesses of the gospel? The Day of Atonement? What is that speaking of? A need for atonement, a need to be forgiven. And every sacrificial system on the altar was a need to be forgiven. Jesus has fulfilled that, isn't he? Hasn't he? He is the one-time sacrifice. There is no need for a Day of Atonement. It happened at the cross. There is no need for the morning and evening sacrifice. It happened at the cross. Passover happened at the cross. The Feast of Weeks happened at the cross. All the feasts and festivals and new moon celebrations, as Colossians chapter 2 speak of, happened at the cross. They were already all proclaiming the gospel. They were all pushing the hearts of every believer towards the one way of salvation through Jesus Christ. The whole of God's Word, isn't it? The whole of God's Word pointing the heart and the affections to Jesus. You could even say it like this. What is, the, what is the gospel or who is the gospel? The gospel, is it's Jesus, isn't it? He is our good news. And it's the Father who sent the Son and the Spirit. God is the gospel. God so loving the world is the gospel. And it was there from the very beginning. In the, in the muck and the mire of human sinfulness, God was already pointing to the one way of Jesus. Well, I asked that question at the end. Why is Jesus the only way? One thing is clear that Jesus claims, compared to, of all religious leaders, are the most exclusive. He's not saying there are other gods, there's only one. There's only one God represented in three persons, and only through me can you know the Father. Only through me can you be saved. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other leader, really, in the history of major religions that ever said that. Jesus is most exclusive. Second, Jesus' claims of full humanity and full divinity are the most outlandish. And they're the most awesome and wondrous and assuring and comforting and glorious words that have transformed the world and continue to do so and all eternity. Third, Jesus' claims of salvation for men are most sovereign. It's not about what, how you save yourself. It's how God saves you. 
that one way of salvation came down to you. It found you and brought you and gathered you in to his sheepfold, his sheep pen. And Jesus continues to do that today in Nigeria, in Iran, in Myanmar, in Zambia, in Algeria, in Turkey, throughout the nations. And lastly, the good news of Jesus, what's the most satisfying? The heart will, the heart will find its rest when it finds its rest in Jesus. He is the only way to find that rest, a rest that's forever. But it begins when you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing, you have life in his name. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the one way of Christ, the glorious assurances we have in him, the glorious reflections of the saints for thousands of years upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. And may we continue to reflect and we continue to meditate and we continue to sing and we would, we would continue to pray and would we continue to delight in the only way that men must be saved and that is in Jesus. We love you, Jesus because you first loved us along with the Father and the Spirit. Amen.